Stand on it. Come on, man, stand on it. Stand on it now. The Tri-State's number one motorsports talk show. Today's program is brought to you in part by our marketing partners. Recognized by the Eastern Motorsports Press Association as one of the top racing shows in the Eastern United States, here's Rappin' on Racing. July 1, 2023, was a sad day in local racing with the passing of Gene Lynch. Jean Lynch was probably the most knowledgeable woman in motorsports for many, many years. And today's program is going to be a repeat of one I did with Jean years ago. Commercial-free, her thoughts, I hope you enjoy it. Jean, may you rest in peace. She's all you'd ever want She's the kind I'd like to flaunt And take to dinner But she always knows her place She's got style, she's got grace She's a winner She's a lady All right, fans, our guest tonight is Jane Lynch, and I have described her on many occasions as one of the most knowledgeable women in motorsports, and tonight's interview is going to help you understand why I feel that way. Good evening, Jean. How are you? Hi, Don. I'm fine. Good, good. And uh, I guess we should ask about your recuperation from your accident. How are you feeling? Yes. Well, I'm making progress all the time now. I was kind of um, in would you say limbo or, <clears throat> you know, no lack of progress, I guess, for the first six months until um, my doctor finally got his way and I finally got a bone stimulator. And uh, so ever since then, all my x-rays have shown bone growth. And uh, so the minute, you know, that that was substantial, then it was allowed to do a little weight bearing on that right leg. And uh, so now I can do the afternoons and the mornings with the walker and then go to the wheelchair later in the day. Well, that's good. Now, did, did I see you down at Pittsburgh when <laughs> Edward had his victory recently? Yes. Um, I don't know if, if anybody's ever noticed, but the last time I was in victory lane with Ed Jr. was at that uh, World of Outlaw race. And that would have been uh, 02, so that would have been 10 years ago. I don't normally go. Yeah. And for some reason, they thought I should go to Victory Lane. So um, between the four-wheeler, you know, the Cam, Can-Am, and, and the wheelchair and everything, uh, they got me over there. I used everything but the walker, and then I used people's arms to help me get over beside Edward to stand because I'm, I'm not just plain walking with full weight on that leg yet but um once that 
once the props were away, there was a picture of me. It looked like I was just standing there. <laughs> well, it was significant because he won his first ever sprint race down there. And I had the pleasure of being in victory lane with him with the World of Outlaw win because I was doing the on track. And, uh, oh, that's right, Don. Yes, very significant. Well, we want to tell your story. Uh, you know, you, you got started back in 1957 when you and Ed uh, had a friend in the jalopy division at Hyde Park. Now, a lot of people probably don't know what Hyde Park was or where it was. Let's talk a little bit about your first trip to the races. <laughs> yes. Well, it was, it was pretty crude, if you can imagine. You know, in those days, people would just, um, you know, cut something in, uh, in a field or uh, sometimes even here on the, the Lynch Farm, um, Ed Sr. can remember that they had cut in a dirt track in, in a fashion right here on the farm. But the only thing is you had to cross the creek twice. So, <laughs> you know, it was, and, and people usually sat on a hillside. So, you know, that was, uh, there wasn't anything, um, you know, modern about it, but everybody had a lot of fun. Well, you know, you mentioned the Lynch Farm, and if I understand correctly, prior to Lernerville being built, uh, wasn't the family going to try and build a speedway on the Lynch Farm? Oh, boy, Don, you really do remember things. <laughs> uh, yes. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I think Don had even Don had even sent some equipment down here. Don Martin. Yes. And, uh, yes. And we had actually rough cut it in. And once again, there was going to be a banking that we could use for uh, hillside bleachers. And, uh, you know, we had it laid out. And, of course, you know, that, that at the time was at the crossroads of 66 and 380. And just a short distance from that crossroads. And we would use, um, you know, then a, uh, a road that went across the Lynch Farm to get to that and there was plenty of parking area and everything. Well, we no sooner, no sooner got started, and uh, the neighbor, the neighbors were objecting. So we had to give up on that. And uh, so then, you know, after that, then uh, Don got involved up there, and you know that was that was his love from that point on. Because boy, he just loved racing. And one of the buildings at Lernerville was originally on the track at the Lynch Farm. Is that right? Um, I've heard that story, okay. and I'm not sure, but Ed and Howard, you know, are both carpenters, and so uh, they probably had that um, building up and going while the excavation was going on for the track, and, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't going to take them long to, um, before it would be putting up the sign saying, you know, racing, <laughs> and, uh, but that, it just never got past that point then. You know, uh, you were a good friend of Jack Freeman, and I guess early on, or we'll say sometime in the 50s, uh, he approached you about uh, he was going to get involved with the track at La Trobe, the, the uh, old La Trobe Speedway, and he asked you if you'd be interested. Uh, yes, that was, <laughs> I'll never forget that. It was, um, it was a sunny, warm day, and <clears throat> um, I was in the backyard, and Jack came back, and you know, he had that smile on his face, you know, the way he, he does, and that twinkle in his eye and everything. And he says, hey, I, I want to tell you, I just came from Latrobe, and um, 
I've, uh, I, I can be, I would be able to get this piece of property, and I was thinking that we could do a speedway back there. I could maintain the speedway, you know, and whitewash everything and keep it mowed and everything, and then I could, I could take care of the racetrack itself, and I could be the flagman, he told me. My mom said that she would do everything in the concession stand, so I came to see if you wanted to do everything else. <laughs> so that's how that's how the old Latrobe Speedway came to be then. Yeah, and uh, as you developed a friendship after many trips to Langhorn with Al Gerber, who was a promoter at Langhorn, and I guess you convinced them to come to Latrobe, uh, plus some of the other tracks in western Pennsylvania. That's an interesting story. I'd like you to share that with the listeners. <laughs> well, okay, in those days, of course, Everybody didn't have cell phones and things like that, but um, Jack knew what time I was going to, what what time Al was going to fly in. So um, I was trying to give Jack all the time to get ready, to have everything, you know, uh, spit polished or whatever at the track, so that he would be ready, ready. And uh, Al was coming in to present uh, the trophy for that races, uh, that for the races that night. And um, it was, you know, we had the qualifying races. And don't you know, that you remember they were the big silver bowls. Right. And it said, what the winner it said on their Langhorn qualifier. Oh, boy, that was, you know, that was pretty, pretty high up on anybody's dream list, you know, from this area. Well, let's to be back, able to earn something let, like that. Let's backtrack. Getting Gerber from the airport to the track was not a straight <laughs> shot. Well, I thought, you know, Al, Al was sharp and everything, but he didn't know this area real well. So I thought that um, I was trying to give Jack a little bit more time. And when we came through the tunnels and everything and started out, that would be the, you know, the uh, Squirrel, Squirrel Hill. Hill tunnels. And right. we were on this side of the airport and everything. So we were coming along and... You know, of course, we had a conversation the whole way because I was fascinated with him. He had promoted so many races, and I thought, boy, if I could just, you know, learn half of what he's telling me here, that would that would be a benefit, uh, you know, to me in races to come in years to come. But anyway, um, you know, he, I thought he wasn't paying attention, and then here I thought Jack Jack got word to me. I stopped and I said to Al, well, we're going to call and see, you know, if everything's ready, if we should come on or if we need to stop anywhere before we get there. And Jack said, oh, I need a little bit more time to just stall a little bit. Well, whenever I circled around and came back through that same tunnel again, <laughs> Al said to me, hey, didn't we always go through this tunnel? You're not lost, are you? And I said, oh, no, no. Uh, you know, I maybe made a wrong turn, but we're going to get there soon. So we just can continued our conversation and continued to talk. And we finally arrived at Latrobe. And, you know, Al took it very well. It's probably... It was probably somewhat of a shock to him to, you know, see a, a place out in, right on the border of a city, but yet it was like it was in the country. Right. You, you can remember Latrobe. Right. We didn't have a lot of uh, extras there. But, uh, yes, he, he just played the, the, to the hilt. He went through the pits and shook everybody's hand and, you know, and talked on the PA system. And he was just real classy about it. 
Well, and, and Langhorn was sort of like the Daytona for local drivers when they would win a qualifier or if they would go up there to try and get into the race, it was a big deal. And I know that many of the, the guys at the end of the season, that was their goal. They wanted to get the Langhorn. You know, Herb Scott, Blackie Watt, uh, Ed, uh, uh, the Fiolas, <laughs> Lenders, everybody, Lundy, they all wanted to race there. Yeah, exactly. All you had to do was say the name Langhorn because uh, that was – it was similar to, if people don't understand racing that well, I mean, it's similar to baseball and saying you're going to the World Series, you know. Right. It was the pinnacle. It was it was really, um, you know, only the best went. And when you earned a spot, see, you were guaranteed a spot if you won a qualifier. That was the importance and the prestige of winning one of those. You knew that you weren't going to make that trip down to Langhorn for nothing, which was almost... You know, it would be in Philadelphia. So it was It was pretty close to, um, you know, it was a long trip for us, for everybody. But it drew uh, all the western Pennsylvania, uh, eastern Pennsylvania, up to New York, into New Jersey, and so on, were these qualifiers. And Langhorn was a mild track. And, of course, most of the guys from our area, Don, had never even, that would be the only time they would ever be on a mild track. So, of course, we had a lot to learn. We weren't quite as sharp as some of those that some of those guys that had prepared better, but uh, we certainly were excited about it, and the fans, don't you know, followed their drivers down to Langhorn, which was a bonus for Al Gerber and his partner Irv Freed. You were a big influence in getting Gerber involved down here in western Pennsylvania. And because of that, many of the tracks ran qualifiers after you uh, initiated mm-hmm. the, the project with Al <laughs> at Lake Trobe. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, I believe you're right. Um, yeah, we put western Pennsylvania on the map as far as that. Uh, you know, the fans from out east, they thought, wow, that's quite a hotbed out there in western Pennsylvania. So. <laughs> That was that was good, but we came up with all kinds. Some some people even took like four door four door uh, sedans down, right. you know, and converted them, and they ran with the coupes and everything. And it was, um, I boy, I have a book and I really treasure it because it's the history of Langhorn. Unfortunately, after it was dirt for so many years, then it be, then they paved it and they ran it uh, as a paved one mile, but then. Um, and they had all different types of races there, uh, USAC and and so on. And uh, but the thing was that uh, shopping centers were moving, you know, into areas like that. And then Langhorn was going to be no more as a racetrack, and it was supposed to be a shopping center. Of course, we lost some other tracks down that way too for the same reason, right. like Reading, Reading Fairgrounds. Right. You know that was. That was closed and supposedly to become a shopping center. And sometimes the money came about, and, and it did really turn into that. And other times, why the property just sat vacant. Fans, we're talking to Jane Lynch, and we're going to take a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to pick up the story with the Penn Western Racing Association. Please stand by. All right, fans, we're back. We're talking with Gene Lynch. And, Gene, I want to talk a little bit about the Penn Western Racing Association. I believe it was formed in 1968, and a lot of the uh, pioneers in the sport were a big part of Penn Western. 
Tell me your thoughts on that. Oh, yes. Well, it was, you know, we were familiar with associations. The, the, the one that was primary for all of us here in western Pennsylvania, as we had observed the, Pen, the um, PRA, PRA right. Pittsburgh Racing Association. And, of course, Whitsburger held, you know, held uh, command over that. And, uh, but, I mean, it was a tight ship, but, but yet he ran many tracks and kept those, kept the, I mean, he had racing going at least four, sometimes five nights a week Correct. for those fellas. Right. So we knew an organization, if you could keep your group together, an organization had power. So we thought we would try that. And that's how, you know, we had, a. I believe, maybe one of the first meetings was up the Washington Furnace Inn on the side of Laurel Mountain there. That was that's that could be a whole show by itself. The Washington <laughs> Furnace Inn. Yes. Now, now uh, people today see uh, Edward uh, racing sprint cars and scoring a lot of wins. But let's talk about when he was barely old enough to make change, and he was selling the National Speed Sport News. He was probably eight or nine years old. <laughs> yes. Well, he was even younger than that, Don, because as soon as I was teaching him to make change for a dollar, and Speed Sport News at that time was a quarter, so he knew to give somebody back three quarters, you know, for the uh, and give them a paper. And the uh, kids that sold or the adults that sold all had these bright orange bags that went over your shoulder, and then the bag was on the side, don't you know? And then you could make your change and then hand the person the paper, you know, and tell them thanks a lot. And then we plugged it over the PA system and everything. And uh, it was it was really something. What, at one time, let's see, Ed Jr. Uh, sold the the Speed Sport News. He always did that at all the tracks. But then, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, it was it Dan Bautman? Yes, Earl Bautman's boy. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, well, w- there weren't enough papers for them both to sell papers, so we came up with a program for you know, that listed the drivers and some pictures and things like that and a little story and point standings and all that. So he was, he always sold the program at the tracks. So um, we had it all covered, Don, you know, <laughs> child labor and all that, but the kids <laughs> loved it too. They thought, um, you know, I mean, my kids were always kind, Edward and Jill, that even when they went away to camp, <laughs> I had to go get them on the weekends so that they wouldn't miss any races. Can you believe that? I can believe it, of course. <laughs> well, then, Ed, he got promoted. He then became the lineup runner, and uh, they didn't have the technology like today. How did that work? Well, for some reason, we had lights down in the pits, and they consisted of a, a long string, but those yellow bulbs that keep the bugs away, you know? Right. Uh and that was strung over a blackboard in the pits. But to get to the pits, Ed Jr. was upstairs with me. I was scoring upstairs, and he was up there, and uh, he, I had a stool for him to sit on while he mostly was on his knees, you know, leaning on the counter so he would see what was going on in the racetrack. And, of course, in those days, our kids always learned numbers. They learned their numbers by the race car numbers. You know, when they went to school, they knew their numbers from race cars. Anyway, <clears throat> people didn't change their numbers like they do today. But anyway, 
Um, now, if he'd see Jack throw the yellow flag, he'd get down off that stool, I'd write the lineup down, and then if it only had to go to Jack, then he'd run down the steps, you know, of the concession stand, because our office was up above the concession stand, so we would be able to see the track better. And then he would run down and then run out to the to the fence in front of the grandstand, and then Jack would come down off his flag stand and then meet little Ed there and then, you know, uh, go with the lineup then to to line up the cars and then point to them with the flags and then get back up on his stand because we didn't have anything like an assistant flag person at that time. Right. Yeah. So anyway, now the thing was when that race was over and the results were down and then you lined up the heats into who made the features and what that lineup would be, then Edward would have to run that lineup down to the pits. That consisted of going down the steps again, running behind the grandstands, and we didn't have any lights back there. So it was mostly a path between tall weeds. And he (laughs) ran down to the end of the grandstand. Then there was a creek there. There was a little bridge. He had to cross over that bridge, and then he could see the lights, those yellow lights above the blackboard, and he would take that line up to um, Earl Bauman or Bucky Fleming or one of those guys, you know, that was working the blackboard. And then they'd have their line up, and then <clears throat> he'd come back up, you know, for the, and be upstairs for the next race. So he, he literally paid his dues here in racing. <laughs> Yes, yes, uh, he did. But I'm telling you, that we, we just had fun the whole time. You know, I think for us it was a bonus. We got to do everything as a family. So, you know, that was, and that was true, too. Whenever Jill came along, she always, she always was helping me at the racetrack, too. So, and by that time, then, Edward was interested in helping his father with the car. So we just always did it as a family. We didn't know any other way, Don. Well, and that's the best part about it. I mean, if uh, Ed Sr. had been playing football or, or baseball, you can't get on the bench or in the dugout or down in a locker room. And I really and Lynn Geisler made the quote many years ago. He said, wouldn't a lot of adults really like it if the kids couldn't wait till Friday to be with mom and dad? <laughs> and, and that's yes. the beauty of the sport. Yes, yes. Now, Absolutely. After Penn Western dissolved, uh, you started working a three-track circuit, and Don Martin asked if you wanted to become involved at Lernerville. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of it, that at one time, Lerner uh, was an amusement park, and mm-hmm. uh, the track would be it would have been perpendicular to the existing <laughs> track, but then when Don uh, acquired the property, I guess it started out, it was, what, Dick Schwartzlander, Dale Hafer, uh, Earl Bauman and a bunch of other guys started, and then eventually Don uh, bought the others out. Is that correct? That's true. That's yeah. true. Okay, so now now you're you're at Lernerville, and uh, I believe you're there 13 or 14 years, the PR mm-hmm. director, race coordinator, um, pretty busy, and you know, kind of helped develop what we enjoy now at Lernerville every Friday night, uh, build it from a little uh, you know small quarter-mile track into uh, one of the premier facilities in the United States. Yes. Now, if I remember correctly from the original Lernerville track, um, we've uh, changed that configuration twice since then. Correct. You know, to come up with what we have now. Mm-hmm. Right. But, um, you know, it was uh, there, there again, um, even though um, Don at the time, you know, 
had a trucking company, so his office was just down the road. But, uh, you know, he was, uh, talk about being in a labor of love. He ate trucking, slept trucking, breathed trucking and all that. And then, Don, he gets into another thing where he was the same way with Lernerville. Right. You know, he just he just thought about it constantly, tried to improve, and thought about things he could do and wanted everybody to have fun racing there and wanted the fans to have fun, you know, just seeing uh, the, a good quality of racing and uh, a program that was run pretty well. Well, and, and every year he would take some of the staff down to the promoter's workshops in Florida. And yeah. I, I can recall being there with him one time, and he mentioned he didn't have an intermission. And I said, you must be crazy. He said, well, yes. we run six divisions, and none of the fans are there to see all six divisions. So when the one comes out that they're not interested in, they get down and get a, a sandwich. And it spreads out the crowd, which seemed pretty smart to me. And, and eventually they, they thought, you know, you might have a good idea here. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Well, Don pioneered a lot of things like that. His, well, everybody tried to say to him, why are you on Friday night? You know, you'll never make it on Friday night. You should switch to Saturday. or Saturday's the main night for entertainment. But Don stuck to his guns, and he figured that, um, you know, there was enough competition for things to do on Saturday night, so he stuck with his Friday night idea. Another idea that he had, now that was Friday night racing, okay? And then there was the no intermissions. He was first with that. And then, of course, I think maybe you're familiar, I'm not sure everyone is, but he was the first one to help Ted Johnson out and pay guaranteed tow money right. to the traveling drivers. Exactly. And, and see, that's all that Ted needed then to call the tracks on down on the schedule, don't you know, and tell them, uh, you know, from Don Martin's point on, all the promoters are paying, you know, for, um, there's tow money involved here for the top 10 drivers, you know. And And sometimes, Ted, he was down in those days, there were difficulties in, in traveling also, and, you know, sometimes he could never be sure. Sometimes he would... You know, never, never knowing if he'd show up with four or six or eight or or ten travelers, but Don guaranteed him, and he was the first. And then, of course, that made it. That Ted had something then to back him up, and he then called ahead to all those, the rest of the tracks on the schedule for that year, and he said, uh, "Yeah, so you know, from now on, from Don Martin's on, all the tracks are going to pay uh, guaranteed tow money." And then Don would get the the team's rooms over at the uh, Days Inn. Uh, Absolutely. Make sure everybody had a place to stay. I have a Ted Johnson story I know you're not familiar with. He ordered shirts, I think it was for Syracuse, pretty sure. And they were late coming in, and they got to Greater Pittsburgh Airport. And Don sent a truck down to pick them up, but he wasn't going to Syracuse. So we were going in a motorhome, and he asked if we would deliver these shirts to Syracuse for Ted. Well, there were so many shirts in a the motorhome, there was only room for the driver and to get to the bathroom. And we <laughs> delivered the shirts there because Don told Ted, I'll make sure your shirts get there. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, we're talking to Jean Lynch, the lady I like to refer to as one of the most knowledgeable women in motorsports. And we'll be back with more after this. 
All right, fans, we're back. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Gene Lynch. You know, Gene, one of the things that always amazed me, and I don't, I don't know, maybe off the top of your head, you can't even remember, all the different tracks where you worked either as public relations or promoter or a consultant. I mean, around here, Lernerville, Tri-City, Sharon, uh, I remember an all-star race you promoted at Hickory, uh, plus your involvement at the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, you covered a lot of territory with uh, the local tracks as well as Indy. Yes, yes. Um, Indy was uh, fun. In that, in that capacity, I was in timing and scoring. And, of course, that was USAC in charge at that time, you know, the timing and scoring. And that's when, oh, Dawn, when I, when I listen to them these days, and, you know, ever since I haven't been a part of it, you know, when they're talking about bump day. In those days, bump day was really bump day because we'd have, you know, 70 cars trying to make the field. And, uh, yes, that was uh, quite an experience, and I, I did it for 10 years. But it worked the whole month. I didn't just start, you know, the weekend of Indianapolis. I started the month of May, and um, it was started with rookie orientation all through that. And, of course, you know, you learned a lot because uh, as the drivers went out, they had to hold that speed, and then they could give, take them up in increments of about 10 miles an hour and then hold that speed and so on. And then we'd have veteran drivers positioned around the track to observe how they did, and then, of course, they were graded. But, um, you know, that's how you passed your rookie orientation thing. And then, of course, you know, it did take the whole month to get through uh, the, everything that had to be done. And then, of course, I was there, uh, part of Indy, you know, whenever they first broke the 220-mile-an-hour barrier. I mean, it was just, it was it was thrilling to be there and and trust me, Don. If people have never been to the race, to to just be a part of leading up to the race was pretty impressive. Um, you know, when you were there and on the ground, it was like there wasn't anything else going on in the world. Right. Just what was happening at Indianapolis there. Be, be you know, be, um, speaking in terms of inspectors and people who had to um, qualify and and change drivers and line up drivers and change mechanics and do things like that, or sponsors. I remember when somebody came with a $30,000 sponsorship for one of Roger Penske's cars, thinking he would be a primary sponsor, <laughs> and it wasn't enough, you yeah. know. He got he he got a sticker, a little sticker on the side of the car, and that was it. He thought it was all going to be painted in his company's colors. You I, know, it I, was big money, but I mean, it was you know like the premier uh, division of of all of racing at that time. I had only been to Indy once, and it was in 1960. I was a college student, and what uh, impressed me when I found out later is A.J. Foyt won the car in a Trevis chassis that was built in a little two-car garage in Ohio. <laughs> yes. That was yes. amazing. And there's another thing. I was fortunate enough you know, to know Floyd Trevis, to be able to drive up there, to sit in his kitchen with he and his wife and go out, you know, and have a sandwich with them at lunchtime and go out into his garage where all these creations came out of his garage, those Trevis Craft chassis and things. It was, it was thrilling. 
I'm, su I'm suspecting that the next story, and I want to talk about the All-Stars and how they were formed, uh, that may have been around someone's kitchen table. Jerry Klum, Earl Baldus, Bud Miller, Bill Moore, Brett Emmerich, Wellen Lehman, and you. Uh, let's talk about that initial uh, formation of the All-Stars. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, Bud Miller um, had started a traveling group, and... Um, that was, but then, see, don't you know, let me see, I think he had four races on the schedule. Maybe one was in Texas, and I forget the other ones were. But anyway, um, you could have an all-star race. He had the name all-star. And you could have an all-star race if you paid more than, like, $2,000 to win. So I think maybe at the time I was involved at maybe Mercer, because it was one year I did work at Mercer for uh, the Quartersons, you know, Ralph and Darlene. Right. And um, <clears throat> I said to them, hey, you know, we could get a little bit of ink out of this. We could have a, a qualifier, uh, and then he was going to have a big race at the end. And I said, um, all we have to do is just, prove that we've paid this money out and we could advertise that we're going to, um, you know, be it's going to be an all-star qualifying race. And so that's the way that, that part started. But see, Bud <clears throat> then wanted to um, take in. He knew that he didn't have enough just on to do it on his own. So because, let's see, because Bert had, Bert Emick had, um, what was it called? Moss, M-O-S-S, right. Midwest Outlaw Super Sprints or something like that. Correct, correct. <clears throat> so he thought, Bud Miller thought if we could put the two together. Uh, the only problem that Bud, the biggest problem that Bud had is there was a gasoline shortage about that time. Don't you know where they had rationed gas or something like that? Right. And um, so he had a difficult time with his shows on the road. But then um, when he put this, you know, to uh, around the table to all of us, why uh, is who wanted in, who didn't? Earl Baldus was there, uh, Bert Emick, Emmerich, Emick, I'll get it. I, the trouble is I work very closely with Brett Emmerich. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm mixing it up, but it's Bert Emick and Bridget Emick, his wife. At the time, she was not... We came up with shares of stock, so um, you were going to be in this if you were a stockholder. Okay, so then it was Bud Miller, and then it was uh, Earl Baldus, and me, and Bill Moore, Jerry Klum. I think that's it. Okay. Five of us. Okay, and then as things went on, you know, the ideas came pretty pretty fast and furious, and we got a schedule together, and and uh, then, of course, it didn't take Earl Baldus long to, you know, uh, improve on that, and then have the idea about coming up with that Ohio Sprint Speed Week, which he did some 25, 26 years ago, and um, since he did that, uh, every, every track in the country tried to have a Speed Week, because it was such a success. We had guys... We had drivers and we had fans all the way from the West Coast 
come to those races in, uh, in and around Ohio. At that time, they were all little tracks in Ohio. And we really, Earl wanted, you know, of course, Earl wanted to put Ohio on the map, and he wanted to do that for the All-Stars, too. So um, that's how it came about, that um, All-Star Sprint Speed Week, Ohio's, you know, apostrophe S, All-Star Sprint Speed Week. And that plugged both Ohio and the All-Stars. It uh, was inevitable that you would uh, get recognition for all your efforts in racing. Uh, you're in the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame, Lernerville Speedway Hall of Fame, Pittsburgh Circle Track Club Hall of Fame, and probably some that I'm not even aware of. And uh, well-deserved. And I, I guess now, well, in the Pittsburgh Circle Track Club, uh, your husband and, and son are also in there. And I don't think there's too many situations where mom and dad and the son are all members of the Hall of Fame, and justifiably so. Yeah. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Ed Sr.'s racing and juniors, uh, because we're going to be coming up here. Unfortunately, I can only devote about an hour to your uh, interview. I'd like to spend the whole three hours, but uh, that's that's not possible. Um, when Ed first Sr. first started racing in the old coupes, uh, ran those, and then got into the sprint cars, and, and, and then at one time running the sprints and the modifieds, won a lot of races. Yes, yes. And he really um, he set the standards pretty high. Um, a lot of people didn't realize that at the time he was also um, very good in, you know, in his business construction and was, had a lot of big jobs to do. And I'll never forget the one year that we were running Tri-City regularly, both with the Modified and the Sprint, and they were a um, Sunday night track. He would leave from the races and drive all the way to Berwick, Pennsylvania, on Interstate 80 and, you know, be there to do his job uh, Monday morning and uh, build that, uh, I guess that was a power plant too, and and build that and then, you know, not come home again till Friday night. So we're used to, you know, and now Ed Jr. has been doing that for quite a while too, having big jobs, you know, out of town and then come home and race on the weekends. A lot of people don't realize that. We don't, we don't publicize that or anything, but we can talk about it now, but now that it's in the past. Well, and something else that people don't realize, and I've had the opportunity to visit your race shop, when they see you at the track, they figure, here comes a multi-million dollar team. They probably got a 10 or 12 bay garage. Money's no object. It's just a regular garage. What is it, about a three, maybe four-car garage? And, and that's it? <laughs> yes, you're right, Don. It's, um, it's really, really very uh, limited, very humble compared to other garages that we've seen and everything. You know, for instance, uh, when David Blaney went to um, uh, Charlotte and then, you know, got, um, you know, into NASCAR, he came home, by home I mean Hartford, Ohio, there at the lumber yard, and built a beautiful big garage, you know, there, and so that they would have something, you know, big to work out of. But it, it did look like some of those NASCAR garages at the time. But uh, we didn't, we didn't have, we never expanded. We never got to that point on ours. It was just a, uh, you know, like a, 
a Floyd Travis type operation. <laughs> you know, a lot of wins for the Lynch family, but the thing that always admired me, uh, I wasn't around Ed Sr. Uh, as much as Ed Jr., but anytime there was a charity function or we needed him to do autographs or uh, my my most recent and favorite thing was when we were doing a TV show, We're Going Racing, he actually brought the rig down uh, got it all, it put a motor in it so it would look good because uh, there was a problem the night before. Got the rig washed, parked it there, went to work, and then came back to do the TV thing and sign the autographs. Or the time when Scott Bidwell was hurt in an accident and we all met down in Harmerville. And, and Ed Jr. was just himself recovering from an auto accident, but spent the whole day signing autographs and, and helping to raise money for Scott Bidwell. Mm -hmm. I never forgot that. And a lot of people, you know, when you win a lot of races, uh, sometimes they, they become uh, not, they're not Lynch fans, but they don't know the backstory of all the hard work, the time, the commitment, the dedication to the fans, and truly the love of the sport. If they knew that, um, a lot of them would have a whole different perception. Well, Don, there was one time when um, I would say just about everybody in the grandstand was an Ed Lynch Jr. fan, and that was at that World of Outlaws oh, yes. Silver Cup race. Right. Even the fans who booed him, right. uh, you know, on Friday nights were cheering for him that night. You saw the true race fans come out that night. You could feel the ground vibrating. I mean, it was like shaking the grandstands. You talk about rocking and rolling. I mean, you're yes. right. Everybody was cheering and hollering. and it, it was a very special night. And, and actually, we should tell people that the car, uh, a model of that car, is down at the Heinz History Center Sports Museum that uh, you donated uh, to put down there because that's a real big piece of Western Pennsylvania racing history. Yes, it is. And uh, I'll never forget thinking about that night when you said the ground was shaking and everything. Edward thought about, he, he thought about do, spinning a donut or something like that. He said, but I couldn't even do that. There were so many people already, you know, reporters and right. photographers and everything, people gathering on the front straightaway. He says, I, I didn't dare do that, but I wanted to celebrate like that, but I didn't get the chance. And then... Um, you know, that was a night when they had put off some fireworks, you know, to show the fans that it was really a special race and stuff like that. Very and they special. had fireworks left over. And um, Algie and, and Carol, you know, were talking about, we still have some fireworks left over. Algie says, put them all off. This Very is a big <laughs> celebration. And even uh, Helen... And I think and Patty and Donnie came down in Victory Lane. It was it was really truly um, a hometown, you know, favorite. I'm, I'm sure even people Don, listen, this is funny, and you know, I find it hard to believe myself. But even people who were not there say they were there for that race. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gene, unfortunately, we got to bring this to a close. Is there any uh, anything we've missed or anything you'd like to say before we uh, wrap this up? Uh, no, Don. I, you know, I certainly have enjoyed all my times in racing, and I still ha hold on to, I'm not promoting on a, on a regular basis, but I still hold on to my special events. I enjoy the Florida Winter Nationals, you know, at East Bay that I work, and I enjoy Super Dirt Week. Uh, this will be, 
let's see, this will be, this coming year, this October will be 41 years for me with that race. And see, that's another thing. Clinton Donnelly didn't think of all these things like having qualifiers around and having the, the car come up to Syracuse and the fans follow him. You know from the story I told you about Al Gerber, the right. way he, he, you know, worked Western Pennsylvania and got the drivers from each track to come, and then their fans followed. Well, see, that's the same thing that Syracuse was based on. Right, right. And, but, you know, I have to say, um, you know, that um, my daughter was involved in racing. She was, um, you know, uh, Miss Syracuse several times, and then she she was involved in uh, a little bit in timing and scoring. She also worked the Indy race with me. We were the first mother-daughter team to ever work for USAC in that capacity. And, uh, you know, if the future works out, uh, your grandsons may end up. I know uh, Edward III has driven a couple races, and I see. I, I believe Cy will become a car owner because he's really got it figured out, and I've seen him <laughs> in the pits, and he's just yep. an amazing young man. <laughs> yes. He, I, I'm proud of all my grandsons, and they all... Um, you know they're all individuals in their own right, but we all enjoy. We all, <laughs> the whole family, still enjoys the races very much. And I'm also, you know, people just don't realize with the Ed Junior racing, the amount of um, out of town work that he has done and still maintains his racing schedule. You know, they, they he just did something that, um, well, it's pretty much unheard of, and it's pretty much. Uh, you know, he's getting a lot, uh, a lot of accolades down around Charlotte for it in Concord. But uh, he took a seven-poster out of um, Red Bull shop, and Chip Ganassi had bought it and wanted it installed in his shop. And uh, Edward did that for him. And even the people who built the machine and all that were amazed. They said it's never been done in that amount of time, and it's never been done, you know, this well. He built the building to house it and everything, and, you know, he set a goal for himself to have it ready for before the chase this year, and he accomplished that that um, weekend before Knoxville. That During that week, Wednesday of that week, he had it finished to turn over to um, Chip in the shop. So, um, you know, we're real proud of him to do that, and, uh, yeah, that was a lot of... A lot of uh, nights, weekends, and, you know, hard work to get that done. And, uh, but he got a lot of credit for it down there. But, see, people, people in this area just don't realize that. We just don't show up and raise the car. I mean, we may be, we may be a couple hundred miles away and still get home to get the car raised. The fans probably only know about 30% of what the Lynch family has done for racing. I know a lot about it because I'm paying attention, and I appreciate the contributions of you and your family to racing. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us tonight. Uh, Hall of Famer, and again, my, my description, one of the most knowledgeable women in racing in the United States, and thanks for being with us tonight. Well, thanks, Don. Um, you know, I truly believe, uh, you know, this, the, I just love this sport of ours in racing, and I love all the people I've met through all the uh, experiences that we've had in racing together. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Today's program was a tribute to Jane Lynch. I hope you enjoyed it and perhaps had a lot of memories of your conversations and dealings with 
Jean over the years. The Lynch family was a huge part of local racing in the area, and there are so many good stories. It's a sad day when we lose someone like Jean, but it will be up to Cy to carry the Lynch name on in history. Jean, rest in peace. Thank you.